This show is supported by the BS Podcast Network. They got tons of great content over there. Please go check them out. In addition, sometimes I say things on this show that sounds like medical advice. I can tell you right now it's not. If you want medical advice, go talk to your doctor, not me. By supporting this show, you're supporting a cause. That cause is making science accessible for everyone. Thank you for your support. Hey, welcome back to the podcast, everybody. Thanks very much for being here. This is basically science. Have you ever wondered how is it possible that that things glow? Maybe you're out in the sun, you're enjoying a nice gin and tonic, and there's sort of like a blue tint at the top or like the surface of your drink. Or maybe you're at your 1300th episode of a crime show, and they're using UV lights to detect fingerprints or other substances on like door handles and, and stuff like that. Uh, in this episode, Adam and I are going to discuss what fluorescence is and how it's useful. And if you hang around with us, I promise you that you will be one step closer to understanding the world around you at a much deeper and technical level. So we're going to parse through the definition of fluorescence try and understand the physics and the chemistry of the process um, and see how fluorescence is more than just a, a pretty light show, even though that's certainly quite enough for me. Dude, this is my 14th, right? No, 13th episode. Mm-hmm. And I have not had or heard a better intro than what you just had right there. Ah, come on, bro. Yeah, get out of here. Good. Heard, no. <laughs> hey, I appreciate that. That's nice. Yeah, I really I'm, appreciate I'm that. super excited to hear what you have to say here. Uh, like I, you hooked me. You got me. Uh, so, like I said, uh, fluorescence is a light phenomenon. Roughly defined, uh, fluorescence is a process in which a chemical absorbs electromagnetic radiation at a certain wavelength, and subsequently re-emits that energy also in the form of electromagnetic radiation, but it has less energy. Um, And just in that definition alone, there's a lot of scientific jargon to sort of go through. So we can try and pick that apart a little bit. Um, And I should also note that fluorescence is a subterm of luminescence. Luminescence is like the all-encompassing term for all things that glow. Um, there's fluorescence, and then there's phosphorescence. Phosphorescence? Fluorescence is just merely one method of how things glow. So electromagnetic radiation is just a more technical term for light. And I'm talking all forms of light, not just the light that we see with our eyes. Um, it's how we can perceive our surroundings like, oh my gosh, the sky is blue or the grass is green. Or this IPA that I'm drinking is such a nice little honey crisp color. Um, All those colors that we see, as well as different types of light, make up the electromagnetic radiation spectrum. The electromagnetic spectrum is essentially a scientific figure that displays the range of electromagnetic radiation in terms of their frequencies or wavelengths. 
Uh, electromagnetic radiation travels in waves, and the frequency of that wave is defined as how many waves per second light is sort of traveling through a medium. Um, at one end of the, of the figure, there's like radio waves and microwaves that have super low energies, um, but very, very long wavelengths. Um, then there's infrared light. It's emitted from sources of heat like human bodies. Um, you can see human bodies through infrared detectors because we emit a lot of heat. Then we get down to visible light, which is what we perceive with our eyes. And if you look at the spectrum, it's actually just a small little sliver of the many different types of light. But our sun emits that white light, which is all of the Roy G. Biv colors that we see, very intensely, so we sort of naturally evolve to see them the most. All different types of light, excluding visible light, our eyes are like totally blind to. Uh, but once you get smaller than visible light, you get down to UV rays, X-rays and gamma rays, and cosmic rays. For all of my math lovers out there, you can think, oh, I can't remember who made it. I think it was, or who published it, this equation Planck's equation or Einstein's equation, whoever's it is, it can give us some insight into what light we're dealing with based on its wavelength. So we have that E equals Planck's constant times the speed of light part. That Planck's constant times the speed of light part, or HC for short, is going to be divided by lambda. And depending on like the numerical value of lambda, it's going to tell you what answer we get for energy, which is what we're solving for in the first place. If we're dividing HC by a very large number, wavelengths that are huge, maybe in like the kilometer length, which would be radio waves, that energy value is going to be like dumb low. However, when you consider wavelengths that are in the 10 to the minus 12 meters, you get energy values that are ridiculously high. And that's where x-rays and gamma rays and cosmic rays come into play. They're very, very high energy forms of light. Um, and they are dangerous to, to our bodies. Um, even though, like, like we said last week, how x-rays are used for, or sorry, um, like PET scans, they're used for like medical imaging or x-rays, um, we expose our bodies to x-rays for just a couple of seconds, which is, you know, not nearly as dangerous as exposing our bodies to x-rays for like multiple minutes, um, which would be a CT scan. Yep. But, CT scan. yeah, I know, <laughs> I know. Um, but I bet that, you know, like that CT scan that somebody gets is probably less dangerous than the problem they're trying to find in the first place using the CT scan. Right. Uh, Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not a, I'm not a no, doctor. No, you're right. It's definitely, so all, that's a cool part about medicine, medicine is it's definitely a uh, cost benefit analysis. Like every, absolutely it is. Yeah. There are only a few instances where you have to be careful how many times someone gets a CT mm -hmm. and that's in kids. Oh, sure. But other yeah, than that, that I mean, that's just because if you think about it, CT, so x-rays can cause cancer. Yeah. Right? That's it's one, anything that can. Uh, so 
the way that electromagnetic waves interact with uh, our cells is similar to the way that uh, they interact with a substance that causes fluorescence, right? That same kind of interaction um, mm-hmm, sure. is what causes cancer or or can cause cancer, uh, especially if you uh, are in the sun too much or you get too many x-rays. But the, the theory behind kids is uh, they have a much longer life ahead of them to develop or uh, reproduce that mutation or, you know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. That so, makes absolute sense. Yeah. It's, it's more sure, of a, sure. it's more of a time thing. Uh, and this sounds like really bad, but like a 90, a 96 year old who fell, there's not really a cost benefit analysis to CTing them. The answer is CT them. Because the, the <laughs> like the risk of cancer in a ninety six year old woman far like the the risk of like what they could have going on far yeah. outweighs the CT itself. Yeah, but and anyway. you know when when you're in a situation like if somebody's rushed to the ER and you're like ninety six, there is no time for the ethics committee to get together. And talk about that cost-benefit analysis. This is like a, you have 10 seconds to make the decision. You just make it. You just make it. <laughs> That's exactly right. So atoms make up the things that we observe and interact with. They're made up of protons, neutrons, and electrons. And those protons and neutrons are made up of little tinier particles. Uh, head back over to episode two for a little bit of a survey on that. Um, But electrons is what we're concerned with. Uh, Electrons occupy discrete amounts of volume around the nuclei that consist of the protons and neutrons. Um, Electrons are like exposed to the surroundings of the atoms, if you will. Um, And they are what govern chemical interactions. And the exploitation of that property is what is being manipulated in fluorescence. Um, Atoms, when they're brought together to bond, let's say through covalent bonds, um, that volume that the electrons have overlap to create these, uh, you know, secondary weirdly shaped volumes. Um, Electrons that reside in those bonds, they commit to absorption and emission. Now, it's important to note that electrons exist in discrete energy levels. Uh, We will throw a a simple Jablonski diagram up on the screen to sort of drive home the point. Um, Think of like a staircase. Discrete levels, you put your feet on them, one foot in front of the other, that's how you get up and you go down. Um, But there's no like in between like a smooth ramp would have. Um, It takes a certain amount of energy for an electron at the bottom of the staircase to go up one and then to go up the next, and then to go up the next, and so on and so forth. Um, But they also go back down those stairs, and that's the emission part of fluorescence. Um, An electron, in order to get up a step, or into what's called the excited state of an electron, requires that it absorbs incident light, or incident amounts of energy in the form of photons. 
And then once it's on that step, it also exists not only in an electronic state, but also in an excited vibrational state. The electrons and the molecules, they're all like vibrating and wiggling around. Like you think of yourself at a, uh, a crowd at a concert, you're throwing yourself around and you're sort of losing that oomph that you have as you're like tossing your body around and hitting other people. You can think of electrons as sort of like the same thing. Um, and that's losing energy in a non-radiative way. Or in other terms, you're losing energy in the form of heat to the environment. Vibrational states are similar to electronic states um, because the chemicals can only be oscillating at a certain rate. Um, no more, no less, just like in electronic states. They cannot exist in a little bit more of an excited state or a little bit less of an excited state. It's like E0, E1, and that's all there is. Uh, chemicals that have a lot of double bonds are very good at fluorescing because of that abundance of electrons. Uh, rhodamine 6G, for example, has a ton of double bonds, uh, so there's a lot of sites for absorption and emission. Um, and the, there are different modes of excitation. There's pi to pi star excitation, which is just that double bond going up to a more excited state. And there's a little asterisk that denotes that excited state. Uh, that's pi to pi star. Um, but there's also n to pi star excitation. And that n stands for non-bonding electron. That would be the lone pair electron that you see on like an amine group on a protein uh, if you're a biochemistry student. That electron can commit to that mode of uh, fluorescence. So what exactly is fluorescence useful for? Why do we even care about it being more than just a pretty light show? Uh, well, this has to do with the research that I do. We can use fluorophores chemicals that fluoresce as sort of modes of detection for, let's say, like contamination in water sources, where you have a molecule that is fluorescing, and it can detect the presence of something else in water sources based on what's called a quenching mechanism, where that something diminishes the fluorescence intensity of the fluorophore in the first place. Also, it's proposed that fluorescence can be used in bioimaging, like how we discussed last week, uh, PET scans use radioactive glucose that uh, decays in, in, uh, through beta decay and also in electron capture. But we pick up the annihilation of matter and antimatter in PET scans, and maybe, maybe in like tiny little cells where we have fluorophores. Uh, injected into the cells, we can watch them collect at sites of a problem and sort of discern the gravity of the situation, if you will. Another example of fluorophores include quantum dots and carbon dots. Those are nano-sized particles that can also be used in that sort of mode of detection, like I mentioned just a second ago. Uh, carbon dots, um, depending on how they're made, uh, for made from milk, for example, um, 
exposing milk to hydrothermal conditions or microwaving milk. Um, you denature the proteins, you screw up the sugars, you just you burn the milk in a microwave. And if you crush it up, these particles are made that are sort of carbon cores, but the functional groups on the other components of milk make up sort of like the outer shell of these carbon dots. And those functional groups have double bonds and non-bonding electrons. And those electrons can commit themselves to absorption and fluorescence. Or, sorry, uh, absorption and emission. So that's really how uh, fluorescence is useful in like a, a practical sense. Aside from, you know, wandering around your house or your apartment with a UV light, seeing if anything glows on like your desk or, or something. But uh, Adam, I just wanted to ask you if uh, if you had any questions about maybe anything I said or something you want to talk about. Sure. Um how much experience do you have or have you considered the use of fluorescence in cell imaging? So, I I don't have, I would say, strong academic experience with fluorescence used in cell imaging. Um, it comes up a lot in the research that I do. You talk about things like HeLa cells. Um, I have no idea what HeLa cells are, and for the purposes of my research, I don't give a shit. Uh, however, it's very nice that it is proposed that fluorescence, uh, fluorescent chemicals can be used in cell imaging as something like rhodamine 6G, it has a high ability to fluoresce, and it's pretty damn bright as well. It can be very easily detectable. Um, but, I mean, my focus is not, really, is not really too much on that one. So, I think I, think I need to enlighten you in this. Please. So... There is a lot of different cell imaging techniques, techniques, and this is really where you and I kind of differ, is in this biology aspect of it. Yeah. Uh, the first time I ever did fluorescent imaging was I was a undergraduate student. Honestly, I don't even know that I had started college yet. Because I was lucky enough to get a internship as a research tech in a uh, college lab uh, or a PhD lab prior to me, like right out of high school. So the first time I really did fluorescent, true fluorescent imaging, I was blown away. I just want to preface this for everybody listening. I had no idea that Adam did this and I'm amazed, but continue. I'm sorry continue so i have done a lot of fluorescent imaging cellular fluorescent imaging in my time as a science student um and they are truly breathtaking pictures okay so on the outside of a cell we have proteins 
right? And these proteins can be embedded into the outside of the cell, into the outside layers, whether it's pep uh, peptidoglycan or the actual cell wall, um, or the cell membrane, I mean. And what we do is we take a fluorophore, so a chemical that fluoresces, fluoresces very brightly, and we know what wavelength of light causes this fluorescence, right? Sure. Yeah, yeah. The incident light. Correct. So is it UV light? We... No. Well. Okay. Interesting. No, it's not. Interesting. Okay. It is within the visible light spectrum. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So when we are using a fluorescent tag, it's called a tag, on a cellular structure trying to see if it exists, like all we want to do is see if this cell has a structure. Um, so we target it using uh, immunology. And this is called immunohistochemistry. Immunohistochemistry. Immuno. Im immuno. Okay. Immunohistochemistry. Immunohistochemistry. And you can actually get a <laughs> certification in immunohistochemistry and become an immunohistochemist. And their entire job is to do cellular imaging at a fluorescent level. Nice. Nice, nice, nice. And some of them are actually, I they're artists. Because they take this understanding of fluorescence and they know what output light they're going to get based on a certain input. And they use that as the tag. And they purposefully try to get these vibrant, beautiful pictures. Sure. Of cells. And uh, that's... They do that as an art form. But anyway, so you take this fluorophore tag, right? And you take an antibody that you know is going to bind to your cell. And what you do is you first try and bind the antibody to the cell. So there's a bunch of preparation and stuff that goes into it. And uh, once you get the antibody bound to the cell, you know that this fluorophore tag is going to bind to your antibody. So what you do is you then uh, soak your slides, your cell slides, in this fluorescent dye. And obviously you have to do all this in the dark because fluorescent or fluorophores are very light sensitive. Very much. They will not work if they get overexposed to light. So you essentially soak these cells with these fluorophores and uh, they bind to the antibody that you then tried to bind to the cell. And if it all works appropriately, you can identify different parts of the cell structure. Now, I texted you a picture, Parker, of a I, fluorescent cell. Let me see this. Let me see or this. Fl fluorescent imaging. Fluorescent microscopy. You did this right here? I've done a version of that, yes. You've done a version of this. Wow, okay, this is beautiful. This is beautiful. 
This kind of looks like a an album cover on an indie band based out of, you know, some small town in the Midwest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, except it's not. It's biology. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the band name. Biology. <laughs> it's biology. <laughs> it's basically science. <laughs> that's so... No, but that really is beautiful. And just to... Just to the thing that you just said about exposing four force to too much light. For all you listeners out there, that process is called photo bleaching, where you expose a four four to too much light. Uh, it just screws up the process, and uh, we don't like as scientists we don't like photo bleaching, unless you do research that involves photo bleaching. <laughs> I guess. Yeah, so I've done a lot of immunohistochemistry in my time. Um, it is one of the most painstaking processes in science. I like probably takes a couple of hours, right? <laughs> uh, try a couple days. Couple days? Oh my god! <laughs> I'm mean, surprised. Say, if you if you're grinding for nine hours a day, you can do it in two days. I see. So to go from no, if you go from a blank slide, right, a a microscope slide with absolutely nothing on it, and we're going to go ahead and assume that you have already harvested whatever you want to image, then, and you've already, like, so when I was working in that research lab uh, right out of high school, what we were doing is we were taking um, – we were – we did a few different things. But what we really were doing were uh, if you wanted to image a animal tissue um, – and I did this in my undergraduate research in uh, – well, no, this was a different internship, the one that I did in Vermont. What I did was um, I would take uh, rat brains and they go through an embedding process, uh, paraffin embedding. So you embed them in wax and then you microtome. So you take very small slices, like microns of like microns thick. Right. And uh, the way that you microtome these and get these uh, sections or um, like slices of tissue that are then embedded in wax. And what you can do is you can put them in a warm water bath and they float on the top. And then this is very technical. Like it's going to sound like it's not, but it is. You take your microscope <laughs> slide and you, you dip it into the warm water. And you lift it up out of the water with that uh, wax, those wax sections on the slide. Sure. Right. Now, a microscope slides maybe like an inch wide. So you really got to just line it up just beautifully. And once you've done that, you got to let them dry and they go in the refrigerator and they harden and whatever. And then once you've done that, you can bleach them and stain them and so on and so forth. So if you're starting from the very beginning, it's four or five days. 
Uh, if you have prepared slides and you're just talking about the standing process, a day and a half. A day and a half, okay. I mean that that just adds to the list of of why science is beautiful and it is a beautiful process, but it also can be terribly unforgiving. If you spend three, four, five days on just your setup, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And for some reason, you know, I guess depending on if you're using like bacteria. Uh, for example, in this bioimaging, if your bacteria dies, you know, take a couple steps back, man. You're now five days behind in your process and you got to make some changes. You know what I mean? Right. That's the beauty of bacteria research. And this is why I – so there's a specific professor that used to harp on me. And I think you're going to know who it is. But mm-hmm. they used to harp on me because of my – despise for bacteria and working with bacteria dude you and i are on the same page the same exact page here's the thing they Mm -hmm. don't they don't understand what it takes to work with uh eukaryotic cells which are non-bacteria cells like you're right if you screw up your bacterial cell imaging and uh they you know you have to uh, say all your bacteria die. You're right. You have to regrow it. So long as you have a stock, uh, an isolated, uh, what's the word? Can't think of the word right now, but the source that you draw from, right? Sure. Uh, culture. Say you. Is that where you're? Huh? Is yeah, it you culture. Can call it I don't culture. know. I did. I don't do bacterial research. I have no idea if what I just said was <laughs> ridiculous. You could call it a culture, uh, but you're say you know it's like you have a stock of liquid, like a stock of concentrate. Sure. Okay. And, uh, that is more my speed, right there. <laughs> right. So you can draw from that as long as you can draw from that. You're right. It takes like f- three, two days, really, depending on the bacteria, two to five days to regrow a culture. When you're imaging rat brains, <laughs> how long does it take to grow a freaking rat? I mean, grow their life. Of, I mean, doesn't like it depend on when you? Well, their life cycle is longer than three months. I mean, okay. like from you know fetus rat to uh, you know full grown rat. I think it's like eight months or something like that. I, I was gonna know. say I was. My next question was gonna be. You know, to what point are you growing the organism? You know what I mean? Well, yeah. You really, in, in reality, you would be buying them. Yeah. Right? right. But when you buy them, you buy them and then you have to induce whatever disease you're studying, which can take, a, you know, a specific incubation period. And then you have to culture all of the brains. You know how long it takes to euthanize uh, you know, a population of rats and then harvest their organs or whatever you're looking to study. It takes a while. Yeah, sure. It's not easy. Sure, sure, sure. And stupid, sorry, I shouldn't say that. People who study bacteria do not always have that appreciation (laughs) for, you know, us live 
uh, or, you know, comp. Ooh, this will really get them going. If you're a microbiologist, fucking trigger warning. People, microbiologists don't always have uh, an appreciation for understanding complex organisms. Yo. Okay. <laughs> Yo. Complex <laughs> organisms. Multi-organ system organisms, right? So, you know, your silly bacteria AKA with humans. your... <laughs> What's that? I said AKA humans. Right. Yeah. So, uh, if you're a microbiologist, please, you can continue listening to this show. Just be be aware that I may uh, rock your world every once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> From this point on. Yeah, this point on. Be, be warned. My, uh, microbiology and I don't necessarily get along. But uh, now I think like fluorescence is it, it, it's a it's very complex, but it's used in like the simplest things, like glow in the dark pencils are based yes. on fluorescence. Yeah. Well, so I I should say um, glow in the dark anything is actually that mode of phosphorescence. I should say. Right. So that's that's that other sort of weird method of luminescence of uh, the one that we, you know, we don't really talk about cause there's, uh, there's something called like a forbidden transition that happens in phosphorescence, which really does take, um, in my opinion, another episode to kind of dive through. So maybe we could call it a luminescence series. I have no idea, but yeah, who knows? I mean, that's like glow in the dark stickers one one. you know, it's phosphorescence. Right. Yeah. Uh, basically like fluorescence lifetime, it happens on the nanosecond scale that illumination you get from exposing your genotonic to UV light, that is a continuous bombardment of light energy. Uh, fluorescence stickers, they sort of, uh, the, the lifetime of that emission of light is way longer. Um, so that's, I mean, that's just one of the defining differences between what fluorescence and phosphorescence is, yeah. Right. But uh, yeah, for sure. I I really enjoyed listening to you. Uh, oh, thank you so much. Lecture, speak, talk. Whatever. Of course, podcast. Of course. Um, yeah, if you yeah. if you uh, if you don't have any more questions, we can go ahead and we can go ahead and wrap this up. I don't believe I do. I'll, I'm cool. going to challenge you to this though. Sure, sure. If you can explain fluorescence in like three sentences or less in the simplest terms possible mm -hmm. what would it be if i was describing fluorescence in simplest or in the simplest terms i would say that fluorescence is a process where you have a substance that is exposed to light to some capacity and light is re-emitted as a consequence of that incident light or that first exposure to light. So, uh, you know, it really is a light phenomenon. Uh, light in, light out. There you go. As always, uh, if you like the content, go ahead and give us a follow on Twitter. It's at ScienceBasicPod. And while you're at it, uh, go ahead and subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow wherever you like to listen to your podcast most. 
Uh, we love to hear from you, so go ahead and leave a review or a rating. Tell us what you liked. Tell us what you hated so very deeply. And if you want to read a little bit more about fluorescence, you can find that at basicallyscience.com, as well as some other reading material that we that we put on there as well. Um, thanks very much, and have a good week. Also, if you're interested in watching the full video podcast, uh, you can find it for as little as $3 a month on patreon.com forward slash basicallyscience. science.